There we are. I just there we are. Okay. Um, I was just saying, Dr. Sachs, that uh, this this is a uh, uh, we we think that this is a tremendous book for a neurologist to read. That um, it's not just because. Welcome to this Practical the, Neurology Book Club podcast. I'm Phil Smith, co-editor of Practical Neurology, and this time we discussed Oliver Sacks' classic work, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and we were honoured that Dr. Sachs himself joined us by Skype. So this is a remarkable book. It's a series of elegantly described cases which reminded us, if we needed any reminding, just how fascinating neurology is and just how much there is to learn from seemingly mundane cases. But it was also the way that Dr. Sachs unravels each case and gets into the mind of his patients and uh, his philosophical discussion of cases, which is so penetrating. For example, the lost mariner, which Dr. Sachs told us is his favourite case. He's a man who lost his memory, and Dr. Sachs uses the expression that he had lost his soul. Or the disembodied lady, a woman who'd lost proprioception, and we were reminded that propios means to belong, and he says that she had lost her sense of belonging. So the question's posed to Dr. Sachs here were by members of the Cardiff Neurology Book Club, but also the Cardiff Medical Society who joined us for this special meeting. And the dialogue shows us why his writing, which is so patient-centred and compassionate, has been such an influence, not just on doctors, but on the public. And he has been and he remains the public voice of neurology. So now over to Dr. Sachs and the book club. Um, I'm, I was struck at how different your relationship with your patients seemed to be from what we do. And I thought part of it was uh, an environmental one because it's, we see people in clinic and we see them on the ward and there's very much a sort of high turnover. And you get a sense that a lot of the patients you've seen and that you've described, it's been in really quite a different environment. An environment. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about the different settings in which you saw your patients. Um, well, very, very much so. As a, uh, as a registrar, as a resident, I saw patients in the clinic or in hospital, um, not in their own place. When I went to this chronic disease hospital in the Bronx, uh, I found myself in contact with people who had lived there for sometimes for decades. And um, I think I was able to get a much fuller impression of their lives, their limitations, their strategies for living, uh, their individuality, and also making house calls has been an essential part of my clinical life. My father was a uh, GP, also both general practitioners, and house calls are in the family. And of course the opening story in The Man Who Mistook is pivoted on a house call, seeing Dr. P at home. So, so this is something that's gone out of uh, clinical medicine very much now, I think. The, the ability, perhaps, to spend that amount of time and see people in their own environment in, in that way. Do you think we're, we're missing out? Yes, one is missing out. On the other hand, I think I've also been, you know, in a rare privileged position myself, being able to spend a lot of time. And perhaps one has to make a balance between um, the needs of patients and medicine 
to have a, a quick turnover and you know and spending more time even with a quick turnover one can um, relate very deeply to a patient with my former boss Michael Creamer at the Middlesex Hospital he might see 30 patients in an afternoon but I think every patient would feel that they were the only person on the world for him my question is um, about the process of writing. Can I ask how has the process of writing influenced your clinical approach? Well, I think there's always been a mutuality between my clinical approach and writing and um, the overused word narrative would be central to both. I think medicine originated in hearing stories getting the patient's history, putting in details, comparing it with stories one knew of other patients, and constructing a story, I think, is central both to my to understanding the patient and to writing about the patient. I will make brief notes as I see a patient, although I want them to feel that my attention is totally on them and not being diverted by note-taking, but I then usually take a break and think of something else, and when I come back, a story has formed in my mind, things have become integrated, and then I write. I first read this book when I was still in school, as in school, school, um, <laughs> and I've, I've subsequently come back to read it now, and the, the thing that, that struck me now as compared to then was that I was fascinated by the biology and the phenomenology when I first read it and now I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit more taken with the, the, philo the philosophy and the reflective practice surrounding it. Do you bring this sort of level of philosophical reflection to all of your cases or are these particular archetypes who have struck you or? Um, well, I am um, not specialised in exotic cases or cerebral cases or cognitive disorders. I, I've seen people with peripheral neuropathies and sciaticas and everything. I will first try and address the immediate problems they present. And if there is time and if there is inclination, then I may go further. The, the time and inclination has to be on the patient's part as well. I wrote my first book about patients with migraine, and I did work in a clinic there, had a limited time to see each patient. I would try to expand or to find out more about the person's life and the whole economy of their life and the part that migraines might be playing, but some patients didn't like that. They said, make a diagnosis, give me a pill, that's it. Yes. And so if, if that was the case, I would say, well, okay. Or go see my colleague next door. He's yours. Yeah, right. But um, I, no, I also can also have quite busy clinics in which I, um, I will listen, I will examine, I will suggest a diagnosis and strategies, whatever, physiotherapy, perhaps, as well as medications, and there are other patients with whom I will spend more time, and often, often my own time. 
I'm, I was also struck reading your case descriptions is that you got a sense that you were battling to try and work out what was going on with people in a way that we have the luxury of not needing to do as often now. So very often you'll see the descriptions nowadays and, and we'll recognise them as pattern recognition. We'll get in there quite quickly and you sort of can short circuit that whole process. I mean, the, the exemplars you chose, one got a sense were breaking news for you at the time they were being uh, reported. Is, is that a, a correct or reasonable analysis? Some, some were. I was very astounded when I saw uh, a young woman with a profound proprioceptive loss right up to her, her chin uh, following an infection. Uh, I did in fact wonder a little bit whether that might be a functional disorder. I think I want to mention perhaps a patient I described in another book, an anthropologist on Mars. Uh, this was a patient who wrote to me saying he had become suddenly, totally devoid of color perception following a head injury, an automobile accident. He himself actually had consulted a psychiatrist because he, he had heard of hysterical color blindness. And uh, the psychiatrist said no. He wrote to me asking whether I knew of his condition and whether I could be of any assistance. I said I'd never seen anyone with a condition, although I'd heard of it. I didn't know if I could help. My um, book was also reviewed by John Marshall in Oxford. John Marshall uh, said that he thought I was being disingenuous in saying to the patient that I, I'd never seen such a case or I'd not read the literature, surely that was the first thing a neurologist would do. Um, in fact, when the patient came to see me, he brought all the literature on a in sent to him by John Marshall. But I think I do often need the impression that I'm at the very beginning uh, and that I, um, I almost need to start from ignorance and curiosity. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, uh, and I suppose, actually, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, who probably... I mean, I don't think you ever made a clear diagnosis, but it, I think it was probably the focal Alzheimer's, wasn't it? The posterior cortical atrophy, which I think was described a couple of years after your book was published. Uh, yeah. So, in a sense, you were breaking new ground in... Uh, characterizing this uh, condition that, that now we hear Terry Pratchett uh, has as well. So he, it's become a very well-known public entity, I suppose. Yes. I realized when I saw, read the first descriptions of frontotemporal dementia around 2000, that I had seen patients with this for 30 years beforehand, but I hadn't known how to label them. I would put atypical dementia or something like this and I would content myself with a very detailed description, which would include the sort of disinhibition they might have. And I think we, we've done that before now, because we, we have this condition now, this NMDA encephalitis, which I think for years we've been thinking, well, maybe this is encephalitis lethargica or something like this. But now with the emergence of the antibodies, we're, we've got a better understanding of it and you know, the, the, the world moves on. Can I ask you, I mean, we've got a lot of young neurologists here, uh, Dr. Sachs. I mean, what, what is your advice, do you think, to the 
the trainee neurologist? What, what uh, do you take from your, your works and your, 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 your years of seeing patients that you would like to pass on to our young doctors here? I think the central message would be never forget the individual. This may sometimes be harder with the, um, with the time constraints and also with the um, exciting advances of neuroscience, but I think the individual and their story and their situation and their predicament and their uniqueness has to remain at the centre of medicine. Since the book club took place, the world learned of Dr. Sachs' terminal cancer, which was news communicated to the world in a touching and dignified essay in the New York Times in February. On behalf of our listeners, I would like to wish Dr. Sachs well in the late autumn of his distinguished career and once again congratulate him on the hugely positive influence he has had on the public understanding of our specialty. So this has been one of a series of book club podcasts which uh, accompany the articles each month in Practical Neurology. If any of our readers are holding book clubs and would like to report them in the journal, we would love to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast.